welcome to Amnesty International's comedy podcast series. This year, Amnesty's had exclusive backstage access at two of the biggest events on the comedy calendar, the 2014 Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the Balham Comedy Festival in London. We'll be bringing you a series of interviews with some of the greatest stand-up comedians working today, and along with finding out about the business of laughter, we'll be chatting about life, politics and human rights. This time we're talking to one of the pioneers of the podcast, Richard Herring. We'll be discussing his most memorable podcast moment with the likes of Stephen Fry and Rufus Hound, and we chat mechanical dogs and demonic monks. So, Richard Herring, thank you for joining Amnesty International backstage at the Ballam Comedy Festival. Good, it's fine. thanks for having me, it's nice. How are you doing? Yeah, it's good. We're in a slightly smelly uh, office backstage. Quite dark as well, I'm sorry. It's a bit dark that. and <laughs> mysterious. It's scary, yeah, but I'm sure it's all so fine. So how did it go tonight? It was nice, yeah. I'm sort of, you know, it's a new show, as so I've only done it uh, 15 or 20 times or something like that, so I'm just kind of working up on stage, really. So it was, uh, this was probably the first time I got through pretty much the whole thing without having to read anything, so that's that's good. Well, there's a couple of bits I didn't do. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, I've got like two weeks at this stage to Edinburgh, so that's the important two mm. weeks where you knock it all together but yeah I was very they were, you know it's quite because it's quite a, a there's a lot of stories in the show so it took a, it felt like it took the audience a little while to go oh what's going on and then they got they sort of got into it and mm. enjoyed it I think well yeah. I thought it was great good um it's called Lord of the Dance Seti yes can you explain a bit about the name and what we're going to see in it yes well I mean it's just a, it's there isn't really a theme I've done theme shows for the last uh, five or six years or maybe more than that uh so I've done death and religion and uh male the male reproductive organ I did a whole show about uh, the penis and uh, love and uh, various things so I kind of wanted to do a show that was wasn't really necessary about anything although little themes do start to develop when you because what you're interested in so it's just stuff uh, and the title comes from um, when I was a kid uh, I you when you learnt hymns and songs and poems by someone reading them to you I generally believed the lyrics the Lord of the Dance or Lord of the Dance settee I'm the Lord of the Dance settee so uh which I think a lot of people did. So it's a, yes. it's a nice, oh, sorry, it's a nice bit of sort of observational comedy without being too observational. That a lot of people go, oh yeah, I did that as well. So I think, and it just, it was actually an old routine I used to do. Um, I did once on a TV show with Stuart, and I just thought it's a really good title for a show. You know, it's a joke. On uh, this morning with Richard. Yeah, Reed, we did it. Yeah, this yeah. One, yeah. So it just, it's just a nice title, but also it's sort of is descriptive of you know me. And then I think with that through the show. And when it's finished, I'm going to have a bit more sort of refer- coming back to the settee. I've got a settee on stage and uh, and do more stuff about dance as well. So it's going to so it's, those are sort of the themes that are going to develop. But it's also and there's another routine I didn't do tonight, which is sort of about looking backwards and forwards at where your career is going. So it's kind of I think it's kind of apt to use a, an old joke that most people won't remember, but fans will remember. So hopefully the fans will go, oh, that's funny yes. to see that again. Uh, most of them will. Some will go, oh, you're reusing material. <laughs> Yeah, I've only done eleven different shows in eleven years. Don't worry, uh, but um, but yeah. So so, and I, but I think it's just an, you know it's just a title really. I it? meant to ask what the cool kids are calling it. Yeah, well, lot lot dis lot dis nearly lot <laughs> lot dis. Um, and you're the self-described king of Edinburgh. Well, no, loads of people. I don't know where it started. <laughs> I don't know who started it. Uh, but uh, loads is in the list. Six music. Or loads of people build me as that now, which you know is, I don't approve of that kind of thing at all. <laughs> And this is your 11th uh, consecutive show? Yeah, it? yeah. I mean, I've done probably, I'm approaching 40 shows uh, over the 27 years or something that I've uh, wow. been going up. I haven't been up every year. I've missed about five years. So I think this is my 23rd Thringe this wow. this year. But yeah, I've, I've been involved with writing or performing in, I mean, near performing in probably 
30, yeah, 37 shows and then written a couple of others. So are you looking forward to it? Is it same old, same old? Thing? Well, I no, I am looking forward to it. I'm doing a play this year as well, which makes it a bit different, a bit exciting. I, did, I haven't done a play for 15 years, so I've written a play. Uh, and um, it's just, uh, to be honest, the last few years, I've always thought, well, I'm definitely going to either make a little bit of money or not lose anything. And this year I could lose £50,000 on the play. It's so, cool. so uh, wow. you know, that adds a sort of new frisson to the... <laughs> to the so hopefully it's things will go all right and people will come and see stuff but stressful. stressful well it makes it a little bit stressful it's been really hard writing a play so mm. I've, you know i've been do- it's been kind of fun doing this at night i haven't had any time to sit down and work on this i've just been doing it on stage uh and uh i've been working very very hard on the play so hopefully hopefully it will pay off but no that's you know that's what's exciting about it you do something you can do something amazing and nobody discovers it you know i wrote four plays in the in the 90s which i was very pleased with and they all got kind of reasonable reviews but nothing happened with anything mm. so you know it's it's we've got like a really good cast nicola mccauliffe's in it who's a, a really top actor and uh uh so you know hopefully it will be good but yeah so I, i'm looking forward to it but it's always a bit of an emotional mm. roller coaster and you are terrified about it. I'm, I'm never i'm still not at the stage where i can sell out mm. you know definitely sell out yeah. without good reviews and stuff and, and the show's called i killed rasputin yes it is the about point. the russian monk uh well it's more about the guy who killed him so it's about felix yusupov who killed him and he was interviewed he lived till the night late 1960s which is sort of freaky and he was interviewed in the late 1960s so it's sort of set in this interview when they interviewed uh, felix yusupov but rasputin is a sort of ghostly figure within it uh, and it's a you know it's sort of about it's it's a comedy play but it's got kind of themes about being judged by one act and uh, and repressed sexuality and uh, and all sorts of that and you know super rich and super poor people i mean there's a lot to learn from the russian revolution i think in uh, in the the western world now from the super rich many of whom are russian uh, <laughs> and the, and the super poor and how eventually the super poor go oh hold on <laughs> I'm not sticking for this anymore. So yeah, so it's, but it's about the kind of mystery of what actually happened, which everyone seems to accept that Rasputin was came kept on coming back to life again. Yeah, which, is, when you sort of think about it, did not happen. He was poisoned, shot, yeah, chucked in ice, yeah, yeah, beaten, you know, shot a few times, and then supposedly drowned. But he did that. It's not. Yeah. It's not really a true story. So we have to find out the truth by going. Well, it's just. I mean, it's. Quite, I find it interesting that um, uh, uh, as such a recent historical character has been mythologized, mm. and so it's actually given he lived in you know the photos of him and film of him and uh, and he you know not quite living memory now, but certainly fifty years ago living memory. Um, it's very hard to get a handle on what Rasputin was really like, and he's been he's become this sort of demonic, evil, hypnotic monk. And I think he was probably generally, genuinely quite a good guy. Mm. Um, I've heard so, you've gone a bit warhorse with it. You've got a mechanical dog. I in do it. have a dog. Yeah, we have a we do have a dog, uh, which is a sort of puppeteered thing. I don't. We have to work out we're going to get a puppeteer or the actors that are going to all be able to do it. It's really good. I didn't think it would be that good, but yeah, we sort because I had like these two interviews that I could use, and they both mentioned the dog. And, uh, you know, so I started writing it with a dog in and I thought, well, we're not probably going to not be able to do that. We'll just have to imagine the dog. But they've come up with a way of, you know, I didn't think we were going to have a real dog. It would be probably more problematic. So we've got this very lifelike, well, you know, slightly cartoony, but <laughs> rather sweet little um, dog that moves and it, all its ears move and it blinks <laughs> and it can, it's going to slobber. That's pretty, is it radio yeah. controlled? Or? No, it's uh, it's like so. The, one of the, the actors are going to have to operate it as, you know, with, <laughs> with sticks and, you know, and little 
well, switches really, and stuff. I'm really pleased you've actually got a dog in it because in the woman in black, they ask you to imagine the dog. Do they, right? And I'm like, I paid forty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, because. I'm glad. You know, I'm glad. It's not like a major character in it, but it keeps it comes back a little bit. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I was wondering why you, you focused on Rasputin quite a lot. I think you had a show, Ra Ra Rasputin, did, yeah. in the nineties. Yeah. About the Pony M song. Yeah. Well, that was about that was more com- comedic. They were both for comedies, but this that was more. It was which I've written as a sitcom as well, um, which is a, the idea that Rasputin wrote all of Boney M's music and was, a, <laughs> was the world's first pop star, which he sort of was. He was sort of was a rock star in that he was taken from poverty and then projected into fame and got money and sort of women mm. showered on him, which is the point of making I Killed Rasputin. But so in Rara Rasputin, it's more of a knockabout. Yeah. And to begin with, it was a sort of satire of the royal family at the time, like Charles and Diana. Uh, when I rewrote it, it was sort of uh, more of a satire of the political situation now. But yeah, but it's sort of quite broad. It was a bit broader and a bit more silly. Mm. And it's your specialist subject on Mastermind. It was, yeah. So I've always been, I've just always been fascinated by Rasputin. So, and I think there's, it's funny, but it's also, you know, it's his murders and, and it's a comedy really with his murder, but then obviously it's a brutal, horrible thing. Mm. And so it's t- treated as this melodramatic kind of hammer horror thing. And then hopefully again in the play that will come across and that the story is kind of, oh, how romantic and weird and scary, but the reality is quite brutal and unpleasant that a man was mm. beat, even if they're telling the truth was shot and sort of beaten to death uh, in a cellar so that's not very nice is it no, not, but no. not a very nice way to go it's not, not very all. funny really is it when you think about it well um, I, I can't wait to see it at Edinburgh but cool. um, talking of Edinburgh I've heard well I've read that you uh, that one of your first Edinburgh shows was Sabotage by the actor Keith Allen yeah it was yeah, what's the, that all about the Oxford Review um, which was my second year uh, we uh, we were unfortunate that we went to Edinburgh as students just at the time when well af- just after the time when stand up had come into the ascendancy and student comedy was sort of being pummeled but but we there were you know there was a long history of Oxford and Cambridge comedy people creating big stars but that sort of ha- stopped happening so we got, we didn't get any of that bonus but but all the stand up people were sort of furious with this perceived and you know I think slightly actual privilege that was given to these institutions but partly because no one else was going up and doing comedy to be honest uh, so they they all kind of basically came and heckled us at various gigs and, and, and Keith Allen came to the first night and moved a crash mat and then punched the theatre manager and left and then gave us a terrible review after seeing one sketch that he ah, sabotaged and then we went on TV to to give our right to reply and then he just kind of bullied us some more and nearly made me cry on television so it was it was uh, i know i was a little 19 year old boy it was quite a humiliating or 20 year old boy it was like a quite humiliating and upsetting experience that nearly put me off comedy i was looking out into the you know, audience the gilded balloon seeing all the comedians i admired just laughing at me and shouting you know, and laughing at me in a bad way and heckling and not listening to anything we had to say so it was quite a traumatic experience but yeah keith yeah. allen was the pinpoint of that so that's why i sounds, go on about him a just little. sounds mean it was a little bit me. It was a little bit, you know, when you when you take it out of context uh, and just look at what it is, it's a grown man bullying some 19-year-old comprehensive school kids, in fact, as it turned out, because we'd all been to comprehensive school and got into, a- and got into Oxford because of our good A-level results. <laughs> so, you know, we weren't really the people that they yeah. were angry with. Uh, but, so, you know, that, it's, it's all character building. I think the failures, actually, and the, mm. and the unpleasant experiences make you better as a person in a comedian. He's doing all right. <laughs> his, uh, and his daughter's doing all right. And his son's doing all right. He's in Game of Thrones. It's amazing. But talking of doing all right, I mean, you're, you are pioneering new media yourself. You have released numerous podcasts, uh, prolific tweeter and blogger. Uh, you've got a Vimeo-only TV show. Yes. Uh, you've got four shows on Netflix. Yeah, I do, yeah. That's, that's nice. And do yeah. you think the traditional route of a comedian relying on television to make it, so to speak, 
uh, is kind of over. I don't think it's over, but I think it's you know it's uh, it's dying. I think so, and I think it doesn't. Doesn't as you know, even when you are on TV, me and Stu were on TV and never didn't really help us at the time. I don't think to get an audience. Even if you're on TV, you have to break through somehow. Uh, but I think now there's so much TV that actually having your own internet channel is about the same as being on Dave or something. Really, mm. in terms of you know, you will get, I'll get like 150,000 listeners to um, the Rich Herring's Desk Square Theatre podcast or something, which probably would be a good night on Dave if that you know if someone listened to it, if, so, if 150,000 people watched a Dave program. Uh, admittedly, you know, mine's spread over a long period of time, uh, but um, so yeah. I mean, I think you can. The nice thing is you can do it on your own. It's cheap enough, and or you know, it's getting cheap enough, and the technology's there, which you wouldn't have been twenty years ago, to get stuff out there. So if you're interested in being autonomous and doing what you want to do, uh, and aren't that interested in becoming famous or being paid, <laughs> uh, then you can do it. You know, and I th- and it pays off down the line because people mm. then hopefully come and see. You at like see you yeah. see you live or you know or buy a DVD or whatever. So yeah, so it's it's it seems to have rescued my career at a point where it might have not been feasible to carry on or certainly to do. You know, I was touring even after Lee and Herring, I was touring and twenty or thirty people would come and see me most places, which is all right, but it's not really enough to make a living from. Mm. But now, you know, two hundred fifty, three hundred people, sometimes five hundred people, sometimes six hundred people will come and see me in the town. Uh, which is a great work with a good mm. living. So if you can do yeah. that, uh, so you know, as long as you balance that up, and uh, it's, I'm happy to do stuff for free. Like Meaning of Life is a thing that I've done for free. That's a mm. six month, six months of doing a, a show a month, uh, and you know, an hour and a half long show a month, which 45 minutes of it is written. So uh, all funded by you. Yeah. So I, you know, but then people are contributing afterwards, and people are buying mm. the right to watch longer versions of it. We'll probably put it on DVD. So, you know, I think that will make its money back. Yeah. Uh, this year, I'm just sort of thinking, you know, I don't have a family yet and you know, I'm doing all right with what, my work. Mm. So why not channel some of that money back in to try and see if I can, what I can do. So Meaning of Life's more of an important bridge. You're going, let's see if we can do a TV show mm. on our own. And we've learned a lot from it and I'm, pl- I'm pleased with it. It kind of, you know, there's things that don't work and there's things that I'd like to change about it. But um, it's... You know, for no pounds, it's pretty good. Mm, no, I enjoy it. And it's, uh, it's pioneering. <laughs> yes, so that's and that's what's exciting about it. So it feels like a bridge to something else. But yeah, hopefully, you know, check it out. It's on Vimeo, it's on YouTube, and you know, go fast and buy it if you want to buy it. <laughs> and talking of your Leicester Square podcast, you're pretty famous for asking the kind of questions that other interviews dare not ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the most surprising answer you've got, and who was it from? Oh... I don't know. I mean, it's more surprise. I suppose you know the the most surprising one is probably the Stephen Fry thing, which is the thing I will hark on about a lot. But uh, in the Stephen Fry one, um, there was a question asked, and he asked by uh, the director's son, which is, "What's it like being Stephen Fry?" Which we didn't weren't, weren't expecting like a we were expecting like a comedy answer to or a brief answer to, or just like, "Oh fuck off, that's a stupid question." Uh, but but Stephen Fry kind of gave a very honest answer and uh, sort of revealed that he'd attempted suicide in the year before that he'd never told anyone about. So that was a surprise, right, and right, uh, yeah. and Rufus Hound was very open about uh, how why he left Celebrity Juice. So it's kind of interesting when people get serious because it's sort of surprising, mm. but it does happen. It, it has this nice flow because it goes on. It's such a long conversation. You t- it tends to be very funny for the first fifteen twenty minutes, and everyone's trying to be funny, and then it relaxes, and people can't keep up that level of laughter mm. anyway. So then it comes a bit more stories, and then about the hour mark, it often gets a little bit thoughtful yeah. and serious. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's you know there, there's 
there's all sorts. I mean, it's. But I, I'm not very good at. Rem- I don't really remember what's happened after, and I don't really listen back to them. So often, I'm. You know, often people come up, and this is true of a lot of my comedy. People come up and quote something at me, and I don't know it's my own thing that they're the quoting. And there's so much stuff now, you know, there's stuff from the 1990s with me to you know, on radio that people sometimes quote, but there's hours and hours of podcasts, mm. I can't... It's like 45. Yeah. 45, I think. Well, there's 45 of those, and there's 100 and something, you know, nearly mm. 200 Collins and Aaron podcasts, and, you know, hundreds of warming-ups, and, uh, you know, 75 Edinburgh Fringe podcasts, so there's a lot of stuff out there. You have to be pretty determined and committed mm. to... To you know, I, I, I'm almost podcasting 24 hours a day, so you yes. sort of have to be with me in order to have consumed it all. I think, but I love the fact you chuck in the question: Have you ever seen a ghost? Yes. Well, you know, because when someone has, it'll be an amazing. Have you seen? Have you ever seen a Bigfoot? You no, know, no one has yet. But when that, I know, and when should... that pays off, and someone goes, "Oh yeah, I haven't. I've never told this story before about when I saw a Bigfoot." Thanks for reminding me, Rich. That's what I'm hoping will happen. But so far, it hasn't happened. But occasionally, those those stories, those questions do lead into something else because people will as long as you're not asking people what they always get asked because people want to be entertaining they will do their best to try and think of something and then they're not just trotting out their stories Mm. which sometimes you do sometimes they trot out the stories which is fine but then they have to go oh no uh, oh and then they think of something and then they are then they're creating actual comedy and telling a story they've never told before rather than falling back on an anecdote you know which is so that that's where it gets interesting i think so you ask a stupid question and the way they deal with a stupid question you know i think david mitchell sort of treated me like i was a <laughs> very intelligent six-year-old boy you know when he was answering <laughs> all my questions which is probably about the right thing to do that's so it wasn't he would he didn't get angry that some of it was cheeky and rude but he just and he just very patiently answered the questions in the spirit they were asked you know sometimes people don't know don't <laughs> quite know how to respond and get you know a couple of people got slightly and not only Stephen merchant got slightly upset with the way things went but only very mildly <laughs> uh, just because he didn't understand what's happening I think rather than that, any genuine anger but yeah so it's you know it's, those are fun you know, and that they're, they're kind of easy enough to do and we're doing another 22 of those I think in the autumn because we're doing another 11 weeks of it in the autumn so mm. there'll be you know again there'll be like 50 of those this year or something almost 40 or 50 of those this year so you know I'm hoping that people who listen to it will think oh we'll give him a pound this year we'll go to his website and donate a pound and get a badge or not get a badge Uh, to be honest if everyone did that once a year who listens to it then I could start you know I'm only going to use that money to make more stuff Mm. so I could start making some really exciting stuff so that's the hope that uh, that people will start you know feeling oh yeah we will donate a little bit of tiny bit of money for this huge amount of entertainment we get. <laughs> if they would do it monthly, that's better, you know, so I'm getting people have the opportunity to do, pay a pound a month mm. or more a month. That's a bargain. Well, it's, you know, it is when you think <laughs> about it, but obviously it's free. I also don't want to exclude anyone who can't afford to pay a pound a month, so I still put it out for nearly everything out for mm. nothing. So there's bonus stuff for people who pay, but, you know, I, I also, I also think the value of it is people will like, if people like you, they'll listen to it, and if they listen to it, they might come and, they might buy something to come and mm. see you eventually. So you know, if they do that once every now and again, that's again, that's all that that will keep me going. <laughs> uh, so talking of taking risks in comedy, yeah, uh, Amnesty supports the right to freedom of expression. But do well you think done. you're correct to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Do you think there are some comedians who rely on the shock and offence style uh, of comedy too much? Um, well, yeah, I mean, some do, but it's it's a valid form of uh, freedom of expression, and it's a valid form of comedy and uh and i think it can when it's done well it's amazing so jerry sadovitz is amazing and shocking and upsetting and i find him upsetting and he says horrible things but he says it about everyone 
And so it's more of a thing, you know, if it was, you wouldn't go to Macbeth or King Lear and go, oh, loads of people got murdered, and like, that's really bad. Uh, you know, that's wrong. Why are they showing that on stage? So, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of it's because people think comedy isn't an art form or think comedy should just be jokes or they think if you're joking about something, you're not taking it seriously. And none of those things are true. So you can joke, you can be, you can joke about something very serious mm. uh, and find the humour in it. You can even be offensive about something in order to make people think about it. So I don't really have a problem with people doing that. Uh, sometimes I have a problem if it's just a terrible joke or it's a really hackneyed joke or it's just adding to the problem. Uh, if it's just, you know, a rape joke that's about, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rape you, mm. you know. A, it's been done a lot, and B, I mean, both as a joke and in reality. But B, it's, um, you know, it's just horrible. So it depends whether you want to see comedies being bullying, which you can be, or whether you want to see comedy protect, you know, fighting against mm. bullying, if you're punching up or down, you know. But, but, but you know, someone like Frankie Boyle, who I think does some amazing political stuff, I sometimes I'm a bit disappointed in him and just I think that joke's not that good, you know, that's not, that's not worthy of the good stuff you do. Yeah. And it's just offensive for the sake of being offensive. But also there is a release valve, you know, that if you get people in a room and talk about disability or whatever it is, um, then... You're, you're dredging up people's fears and that's helping them deal with it. And if you're talking about those subjects, then that, even if, even if the conversation is you shouldn't be doing that, you're, yeah. you are pre- pre- you know, get, getting something going. So, um, you know, I think the, the, when you see a 20-year-old brand-new comedian who's seen someone like Frankie Boyle probably and just go, oh, I understand what comedy is. It's just being rude and swearing and mm. saying the most offensive thing you can. Then you see what it done badly, and you see that you know, and it isn't funny, and no one's enjoying it, and it's just upsetting people. But you know, hopefully, I don't. I you know, I do stuff that's close to the bone, and I do stuff that upsets people sometimes. But you have to kind of balance it up. I don't want to upset anyone, but you have to balance it up against someone will be upset by every single joke you do. Yeah, you'll be amazed what people will get upset about. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, and if, as long as you have good reason for doing it, I think it's I think it is worth doing. Hmm. So, you know, that, I did that reading tonight about the Railways and the Holocaust magazine, which is making a serious point about how comedy is not as bad as taking, you know, doing comedy about death is not as bad as mm. te- being serious about death in a, in a, in a kind of ghoulish way. Mm. Uh, and you'll get away with that if you're not joking, and that seems wrong to me. Mm. So, you know, by pulling apart this magazine and every single aspect of this magazine is funny and you're laughing, you're not laughing at the Holocaust. Yeah, no. Uh, but uh, you are laughing around the Holocaust. So, you know, some people have got upset about that, but I'm not going to stop doing that routine because I know why I'm doing it. So one, you know, one in a 10,000 people comes up to me and go, you think that's funny, do you? Do you think the Holocaust is funny? I go, no, I don't think the Holocaust is funny. I think it's not funny. Mm. That's why I think we should be <laughs> having, I don't think we should be having this magazine, you know, as a serious magazine. So, you know, so you've got to justify it yourself. And I'll listen, you know, and if people, sometimes you just go, it's not worth it. It's not worth, that joke isn't worth upsetting yeah. five people over. Or that, you know, so people often get very upset about a word, going, oh, I'm not allowed to say this word now and I'm going to say it more because I'm not allowed to say it. And then you go, well, actually, you know, maybe don't say it, maybe don't say the word. Maybe mm. if it's upsetting five people really badly. Talking as a uh, Ricky Gervais. Well, yeah. Well, that's yeah. an example. You know, maybe just. I mean, I'm not. I wouldn't say. I'm not. I would never tell anyone not to say not to. I'd, I'd never say anything's off bounds. I'd just mm. say, is it worth doing a joke using the word "mong," for example, that isn't even a good joke, knowing it's going to upset some disabled people? Mm. <laughs> is that worth doing? Even if you, in your heart, are thinking I'm not doing it for that reason. Uh, 
I think you've got to take a step back. And I've you know I've done that. I've used disabled language in the past, and uh, and then you get to a point where you go, oh yeah, maybe well I can do this joke without using that, without using the word retarded or you know whatever. So why not? Why not mm. do that? Why risk? Why risk it unless you're doing it for a really good reason? But then I've used racist language in routines about racist language to make the point that mm. the words themselves that aren't the thing that the problem is. It's mm. not the words; it's the way you use them. The sort of self-censoring would be. Well, you know, but yeah, but I, you know, I'm saying that you you just have to take. It's not like going. You can't ever say that mm. word. I've just said the word mong in, in a sentence to say it's. I wouldn't mm. use it in a joke, but I've used the word mong. It's not like saying it's a word that you can't use. It's a word that exists, and it's a word. You know, I don't like pussyfooting around and going oh, the M mm. word or whatever or any of those words. Why not say it? Because if you, if you allude to it, people know what you mean anyway. So I would just say don't use it unless there's a really good reason for using mm. it. Um, so, um, you know, so that's it. So I think it's up to you and your conscience of what, you're, what you want to do with your comedy. And if you want to laugh at the poor and the weak and people in prison <laughs> and holocaust victims uh, you can you know you can do that if you want but um but the the problem is when people um interpret so you know people just hear a word in a routine and then they decide you're laughing at the thing hmm. and so you can't just do blanket rules because that isn't yeah. so then i i can't do that railways in the holocaust routine that's made a room full of people really laugh hmm. who have got it because one person's going, no, you can't joke about the Holocaust. Taken out of context, yeah. Yeah, yeah So talking of human rights, um, the Conservatives recently said that they might scrap the Human Rights Act after the next election. Uh, what do human rights mean to you? <laughs> well, um, you know, I mean, that's sort of so unbelievable that a government could say that and then still be electable. Um, you know, the human rights are the rights to say what you want believe what you want and, and do what you want without harming other people i suppose so it's um you know and we've got the right to expect to live in a world where we're protected by people that are, by our governments really mm. and the people uh, who are you know around us so if, if you haven't done anything wrong and uh, you know you, you should be hoping the conservative government would be uh, looking after your human rights <laughs> uh, so yeah i mean it's i mean i think it's very important to have free speech um, it's very you know i to, to the extent that whatever people believe i think they should be allowed to say it they don't have to agree with me um you know i'm very happy for the british national party to exist i think those people should be allowed to speak much more because the more they speak i think the more they all all fall apart and so that for me is that, that's the same with comedy when people, you can't joke about this you can't talk about this you kind of go well anything we can't talk about that's a problem you know because that's that's like you're saying we've got to shut this off mm. if it's if there if there's a right and wrong with it we should be able to talk about it yeah but, you know you should be able to talk about your race if you're a racist you should be able to talk about your views and have a conversation about them because unless they're right and you're shutting them down then if they're wrong which we're presuming they are then they're going to, you know, the conversation and a discussion is going to mm. show that. So uh, I find it weird when anyone, you know, when anyone's bad. And that's why I suppose a lot of my comedy, whenever there's a brick wall, oh, you can't joke about that, you can't talk about that. This is definitely the way things are. I, you know, I'll, on both sides of the comedy, liberal stuff and and, le- and and right-wing stuff, I will, that's the thing I will always go up against. If people are saying we can't, that's that's not up for discussion. Mm. Because if, it, if, you're, if what you believe is true, then discuss it till the cows come in. The things that people will stop you discussing are like, you know, if you get into religion and then you go, well, let's talk about where this religion starts. No, we can't. You only have to go from this one book. The minute you start saying there are rules to the conversation and 
you know that's that's a conversation that breaks down so if you and people only stop you talking about something if they're fascists or if they are so strongly believe an idea mm. that they won't allow you anyone else to differ from that idea so i think the the human right to be able to believe whatever you want to believe however stupid and wrong and ludicrous it is but that human right also mm. means you have to listen or you know other people have to be allowed to then put the counterpoint <laughs> to that you can't just go yeah. it's my human right to believe in a massive man in the sky who's looking after me and loves me more than everyone else um but uh you know you are allowed to do that but but we uh but we should be able to talk about it. So yes, I, you know, I would love to live in a world where a government um, thought the idea of human rights was a thing that would get them elected, rather than some the idea of closing down mm. human rights would get you mm. elected. I mean, that's but that that's the problem is that people sort of go, oh, it's all political correctness, it's political correctness. But you know, political correctness is basically politeness, and it's basically allowing everyone to be mm. the same. Uh, and so by turning it into this bugbear, by it's that thing I talk about in one of those routines about, you know claiming you're, you're an oppressed minority from a position of obvious majority superiority. Yeah. Uh, but that's the inevitable, you know, things are going, oh, things are very slightly tugging away from your massive field of influence, so now you're <laughs> going to have to turn it on those tiny little people who've managed to change one thing, so now feminism's wrong or, you know, <laughs> all immigrants are terrible or whatever, so you just, you know, it's, it's, it's all about power, but, um, you know, you human rights are extremely important and your shows i mean they do deal with big topics uh christ on a bike was all about religion and uh hitler mustache talks about race and politics uh do you feel uh you got to a point where it wasn't enough just making an audience laugh um but you also uh like to make them think i like to make them think but it's not really just that you know this year i feel a bit like i want to make them laugh you know and i'm not that bothered about i mean i think they're always sort of thoughtful things will come in because I think those, I just think, I think a lot of those things, again, just come from the closed system of thought that it's just fun to dig away at those those philosophies like fascism and, and you know, up to an extent, some religious philosophies that won't allow uh, counterpoints to them. So that makes them appealing to me. Uh, with the talking cock, which is about penises, uh, <laughs> that's partly because we don't talk about that subject seriously. Mm. So, you know, that's, to me, that was what was interesting about it. I think if you're thinking intelligently about stuff, you you can't just be flippant and joke about everything you know so you're gonna it's going to be you're going to get into slightly more serious subjects but i always want them to be funny you know i'll use i'll allow myself a little bit of you know a couple of minutes here and there where it's not there's not going to be jokes or there's not going to be laughs but uh, but my job is to make people laugh but uh, but i think there's you know i think there's a lot of humor in those big subjects and i think people there's enough people who want you to talk a bit more than Mm. just about what what it's like at the senior supermarket queue or you know, which is fine. If you can do great observational comedy, that's great, and I don't have a problem with it. There's a lot of bad observational comedy, but there's it's very, very hard to do it. But if you want a bit more, if you want to think about stuff... Mm. So, you know, yeah, with Hitler Moustache, it was great. People went, uh, you know, people would deem, t- tweet me and say, oh, we just had a two-hour discussion about democracy after watching your show, after they'd been laughing all the way through, you know, so that's nice for me. Uh, so, yeah, you want to have a little bit... But, I, but I, I always, I've always been a comedian. I've always wanted to be a comedian. I've always wanted to be funny. I'm not, I don't, I'm not really hankering to go, oh, I'm going to... Can't wait to do my hour-long, you know, serious <laughs> political treaties with no jokes in it. I, I, I want to make people laugh is my ultimate, ultimate goal. So, finally, um, I read that you... In 1992, you almost thought about giving up stand-up. And save for... Uh, excellent gig here at the Ball in Bedford. 
Yeah. Well, no, sort of. I did. This was one of the. I did. Get, I sort of gave up doing stand up uh, on my own. Um, but I did. This was one of the places I did really well at. Um, so it isn't quite that it saved it because I did mm. stop. I, I did like ni- 1989, just started 1991, and maybe into 92. Um, but I wasn't enjoying being on my own uh, doing stuff. I was kind of doing writing more sketches, and we started writing the radio stuff together, me and Stu, and sort of doing a double act. So I kind of wasn't. I wasn't enjoying stand up, and it probably comes out of all that that, that Oxford Review experience that I've felt a bit like ostracized by the community even though I don't think they you know anyone knew I was um so uh, yeah I'd, I'd remember having a fantastic gig and they used to do they used to do a gig uh, down where I just was mm. and then they'd, if it was really popular there'd be a gig in this room here I don't know if it's even there now so there would be two gigs so you'd do two gigs which A meant you got paid twice which was an honest, amazing think about the same you get paid now uh, <laughs> it's 25 years ago uh, but then yeah I came and closed the show up here and Bob Mills was on Bob Mills was closing down there and yeah, and I got an encore, and you know, I had to didn't really have anything to do as an encore. It was, it was so early, and you know, that was within the first sort of nine or ten months. So I'd, I I would do I do gigs then, and I'd be torn between doing what I wanted to do, doing what I thought the audience would want, and doing what I thought the promoter mm. would want. And I would just fall between the stools really. So I'd have a good gig, and then I'd have two mediocre gigs, or I wasn't quite doing the right thing. So. And usually the good gigs, the promoter would happen not to be there that night or whatever, you know. Mm. So I was struggling to get on, but yeah, it was it was nice to come here and do a good gig. So that probably did, and you know, do an encore and and feel like oh, okay, I, I could potentially do this. But then I decided not to do it anyway. Mm. For you know, I came back and so it was sort of ni- uh, two thousand and four basically mm. when I did Hercules Terrace, which was a show where I took on lots of challenges. I sort of went well, and I'd done two two one man shows or three one man shows, but I didn't count them as stand up. And then I thought, well, why am I not doing stand up? Why have I got this, you know, aversion to doing it? So because I'd done all these things, I thought, right, I'll go back and do stand up. So I've, you know, that's sort of ten years, I suppose now, coming up to ten years that I've been back doing stand up. Uh, and in a way, I kind of slightly regret that I didn't keep it up because you know I think I'd be if I'd done another if I'd done those ten years that I stopped doing it for. Um, I'd be a lot better than I am now, I think. But but you know, it's it's just time. You know, the time's got to be right, and, mm. and I wasn't enjoying it. So um, I'm glad I came. You know, it's again that that and that and the internet stuff is what saved mm. me. If I hadn't come back to do, because I, I, I just need, I'm not. I don't need to be on TV. I don't need to be in massive theatres. I wouldn't mind either of those things necessarily. But as long as I'm performing mm. to some people every now and again, that gets that part of my yeah. That gets it out there, and then I'm happy. You know, ten years ago, I was sitting writing books and scripts, and it's really sad and very lonely and depressing. Uh, and uh, just being able to go out and see people and make people laugh, and that's enough performing for me. I've got mm. that. I need to do a bit of performing, but that's enough. Um, so I, I'm really enjoying doing stand up now, and it's you know I count myself as a stand up comedian, which I wouldn't have done mm. twenty years ago and ten years ago. Uh, you know, I'm a stand up comedian who also writes. Uh, rather than the writer who does a bit of stand-up comedian, I think, so a bit of stand-up comedy. So it's always good to come back to the Bedford. It is. The Bedford's an amazing venue. And, you know, Ballam, I've, been, I've lived in Ballam for a long time, um, when I was, you know, probably 10, between 7, 10 years, just on and off. Uh, then it got a bit wet, you know, and I'm glad I left when I did. It started getting a bit full of uh, estate agents and lawyers and stuff. It was kind of, an, it used to be a nice um, <laughs> mixed community of all kinds of different jobs and cultures and ages and... It's got a bit gentrified, but I do like. Uh, I still like that. Well, 
I, for one, am glad you didn't give up comedy. Good, me too. And thank you very much, Rich Thank you for joining us. Cool, no problem. If you're interested in learning more about human rights or joining Amnesty International, then please go to our website, amnesty.org.uk. And make sure you don't miss our next episode. Here's a sneak peek. The only difference I've seen between a British sense of humour and, and, and everybody else's sense of humour is British people is the only one who asks you that question. They're <laughs> <laughs> very preoccupied. But British people are very proud of their sense of humour. Like, no one has a sense of humour the way we have a sense of humour. Huh? What kind of sense of humour you got? Uh-uh. We have a thousand-year tradition. <laughs>